The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Leveraging Neoadjuvant and Adjuvant Immunotherapy to Break Through the Outcomes Plateau, Prevent Recurrences, and Improve Curability in Early-Stage Cancers. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash DVD 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, my name is Dr. Jennifer Wargo. I'm an endowed professor in the Department of Surgical Oncology and Genomic Medicine at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas. I'd like to welcome you today to this educational activity that's focused on the practice-changing expansion of cancer immunotherapies into early-stage cancers. And joining me in today's program are several outstanding investigators, Patrick Ford, Matthew Golski, and Ronan Kelly. I'd like each of them to introduce themselves, Patrick. Hi, uh, my name is Patrick Ford. I'm director of the Thoracic Oncology Clinical Research Program at Johns Hopkins, and I'm delighted to be with you today to talk about lung cancer. Thank you. Matthew? My name is Matt Kalski. I'm a medical oncologist at the ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, where I focus on genitourinary oncology. And Ronan? Um, my name is Ronan Kelly. I'm the director of oncology at the Charles A. Sammons Cancer Center at Baylor University Medical Center in Dallas, Texas. and my main interests are in esophageal and gastric cancer. Thank you all. Well, welcome to everyone, and thank you for taking part in this exciting discussion. So let's go ahead and get started. And so in the next hour or so, uh, we have a couple items on the agenda. First, we're going to start by recognizing gaps and opportunities for improvement in this space. We'll then talk about some foundational concepts. We'll do a pan-tumor exploration of key practice-changing data to update everyone, talk about some cases and practicalities, and finally, we'll uh, do a final synthesis and conclusions to the activities. And so by way of introduction, we've made major advances in cancer treatment with the use of immunotherapy and other approaches. And you can see that immunotherapy has finally made the pillars of cancer care. And we know now that this has translated into a reduction in overall mortality, but what I would argue is that there's still a critical need to improve responses to cancer therapy and to limit toxicity in patients with established cancer, as well as opportunities to prevent cancer altogether. And so what we'd like to do first is recognize some gaps and opportunities for improvement in early stage cancers, and this includes in improvements in outcomes for patients with resectable early stage cancers. And why is this? Well, we know that, uh, that this is actually plateaued and though surgery remains the single most effective treatment modality contributing to cure in these patients with operable cancers, many patients with early stage cancers still have a very high risk of recurrence with a poor prognosis even after surgery. In addition, removing the tumor in its entirety with no residual cells remaining is challenging because micrometastases are often present, and other multimodality therapies are recommended in addition to surgery in certain tumor types and settings, including chemo in the neoadjuvant setting, uh, but outcomes are still less than optimal. Finally, the accelerated transitions of uh, immunotherapies from advanced to early stage offers new hope of improved outcomes, including reduced risk of recurrence and improve cure rates. And I wanted to talk to each of our experts and have them uh, really give a few thoughts about these concepts. Sure. Well, um, for lung cancer specifically, we've seen very few developments in about 15 years since the, the first data suggesting that perioperative chemotherapy was beneficial. However, in the last couple of years with initially targeted therapy for EGFR, and now this year, two major trials of um, perioperative immunotherapy 
we're starting to see benefits from um, a PD-1 blockade and potential combinations with chemotherapy. So I think it's an exciting time and we'll discuss some of those um, data today. Great. Matt? It's a similar story in bladder cancer. Um, Neoadjuvant chemotherapy has been standard for a few decades now, but a large subset of our patients can get cisplatin-based chemotherapy, and the risk of metastatic recurrence after cystectomy is about 50%. Uh, so there was a large gap to fill, and immune checkpoint blockade is starting to fill that gap. In kidney cancer, it's been decades of studies with perioperative therapies, one after another, another not showing benefit, and we finally have adjuvant therapy that shows improved outcomes. Great. And Ronan? You know, in esophageal G-junction cancers, we've been watching on enviously where all your tumor types with all those advances year after year with targeted agents and immunotherapy advances. And we, we haven't seen them, but 2021 has been a transformative year for gastric esophageal cancers. We've seen numerous FDA approvals. It's all revolved around the immune system. And of course, we had the approval in the adjuvant space, which was really exciting for us. And paradigm changing, uh, absolutely. Great, thanks all. So I'm a melanoma surgeon and treat a lot of patients and what I can tell you is that treatment with immunotherapy and other approaches are being used in patients with earlier stage melanoma. Uh, this is data from uh, adjuvant trials showing that these agents are actually effective in uh, in really reducing the risk of relapse in these patients, both with either adjuvant targeted therapy or with adjuvant checkpoint blockade. But in addition to this, there's a very strong rationale to use these in the neoadjuvant or pre-surgical setting. And why is that? Well, clinically, we know that though upfront surgery is currently the standard of care in these patients, if you treat patients like this with upfront surgery, up to 70% of patients could actually relapse and die of disease, at least before we started using adjuvant uh, immune checkpoint blockade. In addition to this, there's very strong preclinical data suggesting that treatment with new adjuvant immune checkpoint blockade is superior to treatment with adjuvant checkpoint blockade with regard to long-term outcomes in these preclinical models. And the benefits of immunotherapies are now expanding to early stage cancer settings with current approvals and indications with lots of exciting progress being made, especially in 2021. This includes the use of nivolumab uh, across multiple different cancer types, ipilimumab, pembrolizumab, and atezolizumab as well. And so despite the efficacy of adjuvant treatment, there really are potential advantages to using neoadjuvant treatment. And I show a figure here from Caroline Robert's publication in Nature Medicine just a few years ago, where this really highlights this. And you can see that in patients who were treated uh, who have local regional metastatic melanoma, at least, often these patients will have distant microscopic metastases. And if you treat them with upfront surgery and adjuvant immunotherapy, perhaps you don't necessarily get all of these micrometastases and you can get relapse. However, if you treat with neoadjuvant immunotherapy, you treat not only the primary tumor bed or the, the actual metastatic deposit that's clinically apparent, but you can also treat that, that micrometastatic disease using immune activation and eliminate all disease. And that's really the hypothesis behind these types of approaches. And in melanoma, uh, investigators worldwide have really banded together to improve patient outcomes through several approaches. There's an international neoadjuvant melanoma consortia that's put out several white papers, not only looking at pathologic responses, but also kind of blueprints for what is the most appropriate neoadjuvant therapy in melanoma. 
we've also worked with uh, members of the FDA uh, to path the way, uh, pave the way for approval, and uh, had a recent publication from Nature Medicine showing uh, real effectiveness of neoadjuvant targeted therapy as well as immune checkpoint blockade, as well as biomarkers to really determine who might benefit the most. But a lot of questions remain regarding surrogate endpoints of both neoadjuvant as well as adjuvant immunotherapy. Certainly overall survival is the gold standard outcome for phase three trials, but this isn't really uh, realistic in light of uh, these clinical trials and resectable cancers that makes uh, this research really daunting and expensive. And uh, strategies to expedite clinical trials, including assessing immunotherapies in early stage settings, is the use of newer innovative surrogate measurements. And many adjuvant approvals are, have been based on disease-free survival, and for neoadjuvant trials, overall survival and event-free survival represent long-term clinical benefit endpoints. But this setting also provides the ability to assess pathologic response as an early surrogate marker. And we'll talk a little bit more about this in each of the cancer types. And so, so we'll go ahead and move on from here. And so what I wanted to do is provide a little bit of a framework with regard to melanoma. This is, uh, again, uh, 15 years ago, we uh, really didn't have many effective therapies, but we've come a long way. And I've actually, uh, I'd proudly like to say, uh, led the field a bit with regard to some of these neoadjuvant approaches, though, though uh, now we have seen uh, major advances across cancer types. And with regard to the approved drugs for the adjuvant therapy of stage three melanoma, uh, uh, in the old era, uh, pre-2009, we really only had high-dose interferon. Um, and this was not horribly effective and was pretty toxic. Uh, however, over the last decade or more, we've now had FDA approval of several agents in the adjuvant setting, including ipilimumab, nivolumab, dibrafenib and trametinib, and also pembrolizumab. And we'll talk a little bit about this data. And so this is the EORTC uh, 1.8071 trial, which was the ipi, uh, ipilimumab versus placebo, where they saw a uh, reduction in risk of relapse. Uh, however, the problem with this was there was a tremendous toxicity in these studies and 54% actually had to discontinue treatment. Now, how about um, if you compare adjuvant nivolumab versus ipilimumab, and this was the Checkmate uh, 238 study where they uh, took patients with stage 3B or 3C versus stage 4 M1A or M1B versus uh, M1C melanoma and uh, stratified them by tumor PDL1 status at a 5% cutoff. And what they found uh, really after looking at this was that there was a benefit of uh, treating with the nivolumab versus ipilimumab. And this really set the new standard uh, for treatment with patients, particularly in light of lower toxicity. Following that, there was another study of pembrolizumab versus placebo after complete resection of high-risk stage three melanoma, and this was the EORTC 1325 or Kino054 study, where they took high-risk resected stage three cutaneous melanoma patients and randomized them one-to-one -to, -one, uh, to either pembrolizumab uh, versus placebo uh, as adjuvant therapy for a total of 18 doses, looked at uh, recurrence, and uh, these patients were able to cross over. And uh, what they found when they did these studies is that there was a statistically significant benefit to treatment with pembrolizumab over placebo. And, and uh, this data was presented by Lex Egermont and really made a huge splash again, suggesting that adjuvant use of pembrolizumab uh, following resection of high-risk resected melanoma is a tractable strategy. 
Now, how about uh, the final uh, DMFS analysis? And again, the, uh, this final analysis, again, really supports this. Now, how about the use of adjuvant nivolumab and ipilimumab uh, versus nivolumab in stage 3BC and stage 4 uh, melanoma patients? And this was the Checkmate 915 study where the primary endpoint was relapse-free survival in pdl one negative uh, patients. Uh, there was an intention to treat um, population analysis and really the the bottom line is this, uh, this study did not meet its primary endpoints. There was no uh, benefit. But when they looked at a subset of really high-risk patients uh, who had resected stage 4 disease, they found that there was some benefit. And so perhaps some of these patients benefit. But the take-home message is that uh, this that combined treatment with ipinevo in the adjuvant setting was no better than, than nivolumab alone, um, at least for the majority of patients. So what's next? Well, certainly adjuvant therapy in high-risk uh, patients with uh, stage 1 or uh, 2A only, uh, you know, would is certainly being done at this point. And also neoadjuvant immunotherapy developments will be discussed. And so stage 2A and stage 2B or C, um, these patients have a real risk for relapse and sometimes even higher than stage 3A. And if you look at the the survival for these patients. The question is, you know, will these patients actually benefit from treatment with immune checkpoint blockade? And so there are ongoing trials uh, of adjuvant anti-PD-1 antibodies for patients with stage 2B and C melanoma. Uh, there's the Keynote 716 trial as well as the Checkmate 76K. Uh, both of these are looking at uh, randomization of treatment with anti-PD-1 versus placebo and uh, looking at, at rates of relapse in these patients. In addition to this, there's a nevomela adjuvant treatment of high-risk uh, stage 2 melanoma. And uh, in this, patients are actually um, assessed by the melagenics test where they're randomized um, if they have a high score to either have treatment with uh, nivolumab in the adjuvant setting versus observation. And if they have a low risk score, they're just treated with observation. But what's the next revolution? And that's certainly neoadjuvant immunotherapy, and that's uh, neoadjuvant anti-PD-1 versus uh, neoadjuvant anti-PD-1 in combination with uh, anti-CTLA-4. And really the first studies that were done in the neoadjuvant uh, setting in patients with resectable high-risk local regional melanoma metastases were done in the setting of treatment with uh, neoadjuvant BRAF and MEK inhibitors. And this was a cohort of patients who were treated uh, with either upfront standard care surgery versus treatment with neoadjuvant and adjuvant BRAF and MEK inhibitors. And this was a study that was done at MD Anderson Cancer Center. And what we found when we did this study is that patients who were treated with neoadjuvant and adjuvant BRAF and MEK inhibitors had uh, survival and uh, relapse-free survival benefit over those treated with standard care upfront surgery, which intuitively makes sense. But what was really striking was that it was only those patients who achieved a pathologic complete response to therapy who actually derived any benefit, whereas if patients failed to achieve a pathologic complete response, they really had pretty poor outcomes. Now, Others have actually recapitulated these findings. This is data from Georgina Long that was published, which again showed that if patients achieve a pathologic complete response in the setting of treatment with neoadjuvant uh, BRAF and MEK inhibitors, they do much better than if they fail to achieve a PATH-CR. Now, how about neoadjuvant immune checkpoint blockade? So we and others have now run studies using uh, treatment with either uh, neoadjuvant anti-PD-1 
versus neoadjuvant anti-PD-1 plus anti-CTLA-4, followed by adjuvant PD-1, and this was a trial that we ran at MD Anderson Cancer Center, where we randomized patients to either undergo treatment with ipi, ipilimumab, three megs per kg, and nivolumab, one meg per kg, versus nivolumab at three megs per kg. For a total of nine weeks of therapy, restaged them, did a surgical resection, and then put them on to adjuvant anti-PD-1 therapy. And what we found when we ran these studies is that if patients received combined immune checkpoint blockade targeting CTLA-4 and PD-1, they actually were three times as likely to have a radiographic response, nearly twice as likely to have a pathologic complete response. However, that came at a large cost, so they actually had a much higher rate of grade three or above adverse events, 73% versus 8% in the PD-1 monotherapy arm. And other groups have recapitulated these findings. So there's a group from Penn uh, that actually gave a single dose of pembrolizumab to patients with a high-risk resectable local regional metastatic melanoma and showed that after a single dose of pembrolizumab, 30% of patients had a major pathologic response. And if they did, they actually had a long-term benefit. So this really galvanizes this approach. And importantly, others have done uh, studies where they looked at neoadjuvant versus adjuvant ipilimumab and nivolumab uh, in the setting of treatment with high-risk resectable local regional metastatic melanoma and uh, saw importantly that in the setting of neoadjuvant treatment they actually saw an expansion of T-cell clones in these patients. Now how about uh, can we optimize the dose and uh, the dosing regimen for these these patients, and, and Christian Blank and others at the Netherlands Cancer Institute have done just that. They ran this OPUS and NEO study, which identified the optimal treatment scheme. So what they did in this study is uh, took patients with uh, high-risk resectable metastatic melanoma, randomized them to one of three arms where they either got uh, IPI-3 NEVO-1 uh, for two doses, uh, IPI-1 NEVO-3 for two doses, or they got IPI, uh, sequential ipilimumab and nivolumab treatment. Uh, Patients then underwent surgery and uh, were followed, and what they found is that the optimal regimen was really this IPI-1 NEVO-3 regimen, where they had a very high pathologic response, 77%, with a relatively low rate of grade three or above adverse events, at 20%. Um, actually found, as we did, that the, the other regimen, or IPI-3 NEVO-1, was associated with high uh, rates of response, but also with high toxicity, and the sequential really uh, had less efficacy with much higher toxicity. And the relapse-free survival after two years of follow-up and pathologic response really predicts outcome. And so you see that patients who are treated on this trial actually did quite well. Uh, really only one patient uh, with a path pathologic response has relapsed. And you can see that if patients have a pathologic response to treatment with neoadjuvant combined immune checkpoint blockade, they do quite well whereas if they fail to achieve a pass CR, they don't. Now, how about if we contrast this with targeted therapy, and this is data from a pooled analysis by the International Neoadjuvant Melanoma Consortia, which compared treatment with neoadjuvant immunotherapy versus treatment with neoadjuvant targeted therapy. And what they found is that uh, if you treat patients with neoadjuvant immunotherapy, uh, if they have any type of response whatsoever, they actually derive long-term benefit, and it's only those patients who fail to achieve any response that actually have very poor outcomes. Now contrast that with treatment with neoadjuvant-targeted therapy, and you can see it's, in, with regard to targeted therapy, it's only those patients who have an pathologic complete response with zero viable tumor that actually derive any benefit. And some of those patients will actually relapse. And 
if they have anything less than a complete response, really very few of those patients derive any benefit whatsoever. Now we're trying to uh, iterate on this and, and go even further. This is the so-called PRADO study where uh, we're actually able to eliminate therapeutic lymph node dissections in good responders with neoadjuvant uh, uh, combined immune checkpoint blockade. And so what uh, we've done in this study is take patients with uh, stage 3B or 3C melanoma uh, and give them two courses of treatment with ipilimumab at 1 mg per kg and nivolumab at 3 mg per kg then resect just that index node, and if they've had a pathologic complete response or a major path response with less than 10% uh, viable tumor, we don't do a completion lymph node dissection and just follow those patients. If they have a partial response, they get a completion lymph node dissection and are followed. And if they don't have a pathologic response, they undergo the complete lymph node dissection and are also started on uh, adjuvant therapy with nivolumab. And really what's come out of this is that Prado has actually confirmed the high pathologic response rate and safety that was observed in the previous Opus and Neo RMB uh, at that IPI-1 NEVO-3 dose. And the pathologic complete response rate was actually 71% with a very low uh, rate of grade 3 uh, or above adverse events, only 22%, which is actually pretty good. And, and importantly, therapeutic lymph node dissection was actually omitted in 60% in of patients, which is a real paradigm shift. And so with regard to expert insights for melanoma, I think neoadjuvant treatment with immune checkpoint blockade in patients with high-risk resectable metastatic melanoma is generally safe, but optimal regimens uh, remain incompletely defined, though I think we have some insights on this. Um, additional strategies should be considered in patients with immunologically cold tumors, such as acral and mucosal melanomas, uh, but overall the neoadjuvant approach is quite promising. Now just to, I know, um, uh, really, we're mainly talking about melanoma, uh, GI cancers, uh, GU cancers, and lung cancer, but also wanted to share some really important data that was uh, recently reported in triple negative breast cancer, where uh, we now know from the Keynote 522 study for pembrolizumab for early triple negative breast cancer uh, that the FDA-approved pembrolizumab for high-risk early-stage triple negative in combination with chemotherapy as neoadjuvant treatment and has continued as a single agent as adjuvant treatment after surgery. And this is really important data uh, that was recently uh, reported and has now translated into an FDA approval. And so with that, I'll turn it over to Dr. Ronan Kelly, uh, who will discuss upper GI cancers. Uh, thank you very much. And now we'll move to esophageal and gastroesophageal junction cancers. And who would have thought that this would be the second FDA approval in an adjuvant space after melanoma? I don't think many people would have would have suggested that esophageal would be an in coming out ahead of lung or bladder or kidney, which obviously have all seen subsequent approvals. But I think we wouldn't have thought in, in 2021 esophageal would be the second uh, adjuvant uh, FDA-approved uh, indication for a checkpoint inhibitor. But the problem we've had with esophageal and G junction of cancer, of course, is patients are very frail. It's probably the, one of the largest oncologic operations you can do to a patient in terms of removing their esophagus that has obviously significant impact for calorific intake, weight loss, having to get used to a whole new, um, you know, a GI system and, and so on. So that's why we've had really limited data on what to do in the adjuvant setting. Um, we know that more chemotherapy, if you've got chemo radiation before surgery, hasn't really been able to improve patient outcomes dramatically. So we wanted to check adjuvant immunotherapy as we'd seen some advances in the metastatic setting. And so this study took a long time. 
um, again, uh, probably because uh, adjuvant uh, indications and studies are a bit more challenging to run, but also, as I mentioned, an esophagectomy is a large operation to recover from. But thankfully, um, uh, we persisted and we did manage to enroll 794 patients in a two-to-one manner. This was done over 27 countries, so it was probably the first global study in a prospective phase three manner that we've done. Previously, all of our practice-changing trials in upper GI malignancies have come from single country studies. Here now, we had 27 countries participating. And the entry criteria you can see on the left, any patient with stage two or three esophageal or GD junction cancer, we didn't mind if it was adenocarcinoma or squamous cell carcinoma, but they all had to get neoadjuvant chemoradiotherapy followed by surgery, and the surgery had to be an R0 resection. And then once the patients had recovered, if they didn't have a pathologic complete response, so anyone who has residual pathologic disease greater than white BT1 or white BN1, and that makes up the majority of patients with esophageal cancer at 75 to 80%. So only about 20% to 25% have a PAC-CR following chemoradiation. We don't know what the difference is between their biology and others. That's the same in many tumors. Why do some people have a great response to our historical treatments and others not? But So we, we basically said, okay, anyone with good biology, we won't put you on this study. We'll just put you on if you haven't achieved a PAC-CR. <clears throat> and then the uh, randomization was two to one, and patients either got placebo, which was the current standard of care with close observation, because now you've already had chemo, radiation, and surgery so-called trimodality therapy, and we, the, the current standard was close observation, or we said, okay, well, we'll do nivolumab every two weeks for the first four months, and then for the remaining year, 480 milligrams, slightly higher dose once a month. And it's pretty normal, I think, across tumor types for these adjuvant studies to be one year of a checkpoint inhibitor. And so uh, we published our findings in the New England Journal of Medicine on April the 1st of this year. And here were some of the data that we showed uh, so uh, the median age of patients was in the low 60s. You can see here in the interest of time, I'll just say that it was predominantly 60% uh, esophageal cancer, 40% gastroesophageal junction cancer. And the histology, we see much more adenocarcinoma in the United States, although squamous cell is probably the biggest uh, histology globally for esophageal cancer. And then you can see the uh, pathologic lymph node status tumor cell, PDL1, unlike lung, tumor cell PDL1 is probably not the best way to do this for, for GI malignancies. We have something called the combined positive score, the CPS score, which is basically a combination of tumor cell staining, but also then all of the immune cells that are nearby the tumor. And then you can see here um, some of the pathologic entry requirements and, and the lymph node status, as well as the, the, uh, the tumor stages of patients. So this was the take-home message. We, we showed it doubling in the median disease-free survival from 11 months to 22.4 months. And that was the original data set. Well, you see it's 24.4 months of follow-up. That was in the New England Journal uh, manuscript. Many people may not have seen, however, just a few weeks ago at ESMO, we presented an additional eight months of follow-up. And I think you can see all of the hazard ratios as I go through the next couple of slides are actually improving with additional follow-up, which is really quite reassuring. We are, of course, waiting for overall survival. As Jennifer mentioned, we have to wait for that. But 
Uh, what I'll show you is other efficacy endpoints that I think are hopefully very promising that we may see an overall survival benefit. But even this, if you look at this placebo curve, remember, these are patients who had trimodality therapy and their disease is recurring in 11 months. That is unbelievable to me. And it shows, I think, that we can't just observe these high-risk patients anymore. We have to give them an additional option to see if we can prevent disease from returning. As I mentioned, as we wait for overall survival, some of the other efficacy endpoints we've seen are distant metastasis-free survival. So again, that time for the first distant metastasis to present. And you can see again in the original data set on the right, the hazard ratio was 0.74. But now with an additional eight months, we've now directionally improved the hazard ratio. We're now down to 0.71. You can see it's over a year now in terms of... Um, distant metastasis free survival from 16.6 months to 29.4 months. So really, this is the first advance we've ever seen in the adjuvant setting in esophageal or GE junction cancers. We've never had any indication that could show an improvement post the standard treatments. And then the last thing I'll show here is progression-free survival too. Again, are we impacting the immune microenvironment to make subsequent treatments hopefully work better? Again, it's preliminary data. We don't have a median to report for the nivolumab. We have in, in placebo 32.1 months, hazard ratio there 0.77. So again, um, all of those efficacy endpoints of disease-free survival, distant metastasis-free survival, progression-free survival too, all favoring adjuvant nivolumab. If we look at the, uh, the response based on histology, I think we've seen this in other tumor types. I think squamous cell, for whatever reason, and we could get into that, looks like it's responding better to the checkpoint inhibitors here. Um, you can see in the different colors that the squamous cell um, indication was almost three times from the placebo, 11 months to 29.7 months. But we were very excited to see adenocarcinoma, which as I mentioned is predominant histology in the United States also significantly improving 11.1 months to 19.4 months. And then in the interest of time, I'll just quickly mention that nivolumab seemed to favor um, all of these subgroups uh, regardless. You know, so we saw a response, as you can quickly see, everything is on the nivolumab side from tumor location to histology. Um, and if we continue on that theme, you can see also a CPS score does seem to impact. We know in esophageal gastric cancer, the combined positive score is important. We need to learn a little bit more about this. It'll be interesting to talk with my colleagues about adjuvant settings. Are we changing PDL1 as a result of what we've given before we assess on the tumor what the CPS score is? Is that really an adaptive resistance of PDL1 or are, is it as a result of giving radiation in this case, which we know causes interferon gamma release and PDL one to go up. So I think as we look at early stage tumors, we need to understand more about CPS and PDL one score. And are, is it the real same as what we're looking at in the metastatic setting? So um, the FDA approved this combination on May the 20th, the first FDA approval ever in, in upper GI tumors in early stage malignancy. So that's very exciting for us. And it gives our patients now hopefully an opportunity to really uh, prevent disease from occurring. And like in every other tumor, of course, now we see a whole plethora of trials, different combinations, different strategies. 
in the neoadjuvant setting, in the adjuvant setting, giving with chemo alone versus chemo radiation. And so we'll see how this pans out over the next couple of years. So, you know, as I mentioned, a couple of things there, I think the key things for me are what's the immune microenvironment difference in early stage tumors versus late stage? Can we just automatically assume we can take what we know in metastatic and transplant it into early stage? I don't think so. I think um, also my colleagues here are talking about very sensitive tumors like melanoma, lung, bladder, and kidney. We'll have to see if a neoadjuvant strategy is the right strategy in a, in a tumor like esophageal, GD junction, or do you need the tumor out and then be dealing with a minimal residual disease status? And so that'll, in, that'll be interesting to see across these other tumors that aren't as hot as melanoma and, and lung, for example. And where does CTDNA play a role in this? Does every patient get this strategy or do we need to define subgroups who will benefit? And I think circulating tumor DNA may have a role in that regard. So thank you very much. And I will hand it over to the next speaker. Thank you, Ronan. That was fantastic. And so our next speaker is Dr. Matt Golsky, who will speak to us on uh, urologic malignancies and neoadjuvant therapy. So immune checkpoint blockade has had a dramatic role in the treatment of patients with urothelial cancer. And once activity was shown in the advanced disease setting, these drugs were moved rapidly into earlier disease states. And I think that bladder cancer has the designation of actually having the earliest approval in terms of a clinical disease state for immune checkpoint blockade, and that's for non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. This is carcinoma in situ, a non-invasive cancer uh, where immune checkpoint blockade has been studied. So in Keynote 57, patients with non-muscle invasive bladder cancer, that is carcinoma in situ, that had recurred despite prior BCG treatment, another immunotherapy, uh, that had dis recurred despite that treatment, uh, were enrolled on a single arm study with pembrolizumab. Um, and because carcinoma in situ is, is sort of carpets the urothelial lining, it can't be completely resected. And so response rate is actually uh, an appropriate endpoint. Um, after giving the treatment, uh, a urologist looks in the bladder again to, to see if there's evidence of persistent disease or that carcinoma in situ has, has cleared. And so complete response uh, is an endpoint on these studies. And you can see in Keynote 57, that of the 96 patients enrolled, 39 achieved a complete response, and that was at three months. Um, and so the, the complete response rate was fairly impressive. Um, I, and then the durability of the response, of course, is what's important here, because uh, previously, the standard treatment for patients with BCGN-responsive carcinoma in situ uh, has really been cystectomy. Um, there are other intravesical treatments that can be applied, but really the gold standard is cystectomy. Uh, and so achieving a complete response and having that durable uh, that defers or potentially avoids cystectomy is really the goal here. And you can see that of the 39 patients who achieved a, a complete response, about half of those responses had some durability. 19% um, of, of this entire cohort had a complete response that lasted greater than a year. 
and 19% is around in the ballpark range of the response rates that we see with immune checkpoint blockade in more advanced disease settings. It's around 20 to 30%. So I think that's pretty consistent. Um, so this led to the approval of pembrolizumab for the treatment of patients with BCG-unresponsive carcinoma in situ. There was a second study that looked at a very similar disease population, that SWAG-1605. Um, in SWAG-1605, um, while the eligibility was quite similar, the endpoint was a little bit different. It was a six-month CR endpoint in this required um, biopsy confirmation. And so this study uh, was closed a little bit early, um, but if you line up the results side by side, it looks like atezolizumab is achieving pretty similar results to what we see with pembrolizumab in this setting. In muscle invasive bladder cancer, the standard treatment uh, is uh, uh, cystectomy surgical removal of the bladder or radiation can sometimes be used for primary treatment. When cystectomy is used, neoadjuvant cisplatin-based chemotherapy is standard, but we know that a large subset of our patients with bladder cancer cannot receive cisplatin-based chemotherapy because of comorbidities. So we have a couple of sets of patients who are at high risk despite neoadjuvant chemotherapy and surgery or surgery alone. Um, and that's really defined based on the pathological uh, extent of disease uh, after cystectomy. Um, because we know that patients are at high risk for recurrence despite those prior therapies, there's been a need for adjuvant therapies in this state. Uh, and other chemotherapy, switching to different chemotherapy, which we don't have a lot of non-cross-resistant chemotherapy drugs historically in bladder cancer, switching to different chemotherapy after surgery in retrospective analyses has really shown mixed results. So this was a major unmet need, and three randomized trials were launched to determine whether or not immune checkpoint blockade has a role here. Invigor 10, Checkmate 274 in the Ambassador study. Um, the first two studies have read out and I'll discuss. The Ambassador study closed to enrollment recently and we don't have the results yet. All of these studies use almost identical eligibility criteria, but there are a few clinical trial design nuances here which might indeed be important. Invigor 10 had an observation arm as the control arm, while Checkmate 274 had a placebo arm as the control arm, and potentially that makes a difference in terms of interpretability. So here's the results of Invigor 10. Disease-free survival was the primary endpoint, and you see unfortunately no difference with the tezolizumab versus observation uh, in this study. Interestingly, though, in a really elegant analysis published by Tom Powell's and colleagues in, in Nature, looking at ctDNA using the Signatera platform in a retrospective fashion, um, patients who had detectable ctDNA on cycle one, day one of treatment on this study treated with atezolizumab had a disease-free survival and overall survival benefit compared to observation, whereas patients with ctDNA negative assays on cycle one, day one did not. And so retrospective analysis, but very intriguing in the context of a large randomized study and certainly is hypothesis generating uh, for confirmation in prospective studies, which are ongoing. Checkmate 274 showed somewhat different results. So remember this randomized patients to nivolumab versus placebo. These are patients who had neoadjuvant chemotherapy, then cystectomy uh, and had, uh, or nephroureterectomy and had pathologic T2 or higher disease, or patients who were cisplatin ineligible uh, and at surgery had pathologic T3 or higher disease. 
the primary endpoint for Checkmate 274 was a co-primary endpoint of disease-free survival in the all-comer population and disease-free survival in the subset of patients with high PD-L1 expression. Uh, for the purposes of this study, PD-L1 was assessed using the 28-8 antibody clone, and this is tumor staining. Um, uh, at a level of greater than or equal to 1%. You see the results here in the intent-to-treat population. Adjuvant nivolumab was associated with a disease-free survival benefit with a hazard ratio of 0.7. And in the patients uh, with tumors harboring high levels of pd one expression, a hazard ratio of 0.53. Uh, here's the adverse event profile with adjuvant nivolumab versus placebo, and there were no signals of uh, different toxicities compared to what we've seen in the advanced setting in urothelial cancer or other disease settings. So on the basis of that study, uh, in August of 2021, the FDA approved nivolumab as adjuvant treatment for patients with muscle-invasive urothelial cancer at high risk for recurrence after definitive surgical resection. Of course, as I mentioned, neoadjuvant therapy has really been the standard for the treatment of patients with muscle-invasive bladder cancer, and this is neoadjuvant cisplatin-based chemotherapy. Um, and uh, in patients for whom cisplatin-based chemotherapy can be applied, of course, there's the interest in determining whether or not we can combine this treatment with immune checkpoint blockade. And for patients who cannot receive neoadjuvant cisplatin-based chemotherapy because of comorbidities, that's been a major unmet need in the neoadjuvant setting. And immune checkpoint inhibitors have moved rapidly into that space. And you can see here the results of two large single-arm studies of single-agent immune checkpoint blockade in patients with muscle-invasive bladder cancer, one uh, administering three cycles of Pembro, the other administering just two cycles of atezolizumab. And you see pathological complete response rates here of 30 to 40%. And that's really comparable to what we see with cisplatin-based chemotherapy. So neoadjuvant immune checkpoint blockade certainly intriguing in this disease. Um, combinations with cisplatin-based chemotherapy also showing compelling results in single-arm phase two studies. And as a result of all of these early studies, a number of large international randomized studies, either enrolling patients who are cisplatin eligible to cisplatin-based chemotherapy plus immune checkpoint blockade versus standard of care neoadjuvant cisplatin-based chemotherapy, or for patients who are cisplatin ineligible, either single-agent single immune checkpoint blockade or immune checkpoint blockade-based combination studies. Some of these neoadjuvant studies are just closing to accrual, uh, and so the results we'll see in the upcoming years. I'm going to switch gears to, to, to kidney cancer, where, of course, immune checkpoint blockade has had a major role in the uh, metastatic setting. Uh, First-line standard treatment, either with ipilimumab plus nivolumab or immune checkpoint blockade-based combinations with VEGF receptor tyrosine kinase inhibitors. Um, it's been really difficult to demonstrate a benefit with perioperative systemic therapy in, in renal cancer. Decades of studies with cytokines first, and then VEGF receptor tyrosine kinase inhibitors really hadn't shown a compelling benefit for perioperative systemic therapy. Um, and immune checkpoint blockade is just now starting to change that. So here you see the design of a number of different studies seeking to integrate immune checkpoint blockade as perioperative therapy for uh, renal cell cancer. 
And one of these studies, the PROSPER study, as you can see on the slide, integrates a brief neoadjuvant period, but the rest of these are adjuvant studies. One of the reasons for this is that in, in kidney cancer, um, the, uh, the, uh, the patient journey um, includes uh, diagnosing an abnormality on imaging typically, and then to the operating room for surgery without that biopsy up front historically. And that has made neoadjuvant strategies somewhat more difficult to uh, integrate into the treatment of renal cell cancer. So here's the results from, check, uh, from Keynote 564. Um, Keynote 564 enrolled patients with renal cell cancer post-nephrectomy who had stage two high-risk disease, stage three disease, or stage four NED, uh, and randomized patients to receive pembrolizumab versus placebo. Uh, here you can see the disease-free survival benefit with a hazard ratio of 0.68. An early look at survival also showing a promising signal. And so just uh, in the past week, November 17th, the FDA approved pembrolizumab as adjuvant treatment for patients with renal cell cancer, and this will certainly change the way that we treat this disease. Here's the design of Checkmate 914, which is uh, assessing whether or not we should give doublet immune checkpoint blockade with CTLA-4 blockade plus PD-1 blockade versus PD-1 blockade alone. And here's the design of the PROSPER study. As mentioned, one of the studies seeking to determine whether or not a brief period of neoadjuvant immune checkpoint blockade has a role uh, in the treatment of patients uh, with high-risk renal cell cancer. A number of studies are seeking now to integrate the strategies into the perioperative setting that have really changed the way that we treat patients with metastatic disease, which are combinations of immune checkpoint inhibitors plus VEGF receptor tyrosine kinase inhibitors. Of course, treatment with VEGF receptor tyrosine kinase inhibitors has a role for the treatment of kidney cancer based on the pathogenesis of the disease, but these multi-targeted kinase inhibitors, of course, also inhibit other kinases that might be relevant in um, making the immune uh, microenvironment more permissive uh, for uh, a response to immune checkpoint blockade, including inhibition of the TAM kinases. Um, so uh, as shown, immune checkpoint blockade is now standard treatment in the adjuvant setting for urothelial cancer and for kidney cancer, something that we could not say just a year ago. Um, and like we've heard from the other speakers, the major questions now are going to be whether or not we move all of these treatments to the neoadjuvant setting, which uh, for which there's an immunological rationale, but at the same time, that means uh, uh, treating patients with multiple therapies instead of potentially using a risk-adapted strategy and allowing information based on pathological stage to help guide patients at highest risk. Um, so those are some trade-offs that I think we're going to have to keep in mind as we see these neoadjuvant studies read out. Thank you for your attention. Thank you, Matt. That was really outstanding. And so for our next speaker, we'll have Dr. Patrick Ford, who will discuss neoadjuvant and adjuvant therapy for non-small cell lung cancer. Thank you very much, Jennifer. Um, so now I'm going to discuss some new developments in lung cancer. So we've seen a lot of over the last 10 years, really, immunotherapy has come to the fore for advanced lung cancer. You'll see moving from the top of the screen here to the bottom. Um, initially, we had approvals in pretreated non-small cell lung cancer after prior chemotherapy. 
Then uh, moving to the first line setting, we now have multiple different uh, regimens approved, including chemo plus single agent PD-1 blockade, chemo plus doublet immune checkpoint, and immune checkpoint alone for PD-L1 high disease. In stage three disease, unresectable, so we're gradually getting to earlier stages here, Dravayamab has become the standard therapy after definitive chemoradiation. And now we're starting to see developments in the neoadjuvant and adjuvant setting with two uh, positive phase three trials reported this year. Back in 2018, uh, we reported a small pilot study of 21 patients who received two doses of neoadjuvant nivolumab prior to surgery for stage 1b to 3a non-small cell lung cancer. This was intended to be mainly a translational science-focused study. However, we were surprised to see that and nine out of the 20 patients who had resections actually had major pathological responses. And this was defined as 10% or less residual viable tumor at the time of resection. Uh, this also included two patients who had pathological complete responses, which is quite remarkable considering this is two doses of therapy over just four weeks prior to surgery. And these responses appeared to occur irrespective of pdl one status. My colleague, Dr. Provencio in Spain, uh, conducted the uh, Nadim study uh, this was a phase two study enrolling patients with more locally advanced disease, stage 3A. So this, so th and this disease is at the cusp of being unresectable. And this was a relatively um, uh, locally advanced disease with uh, more than half of the patients having a multi-station uh, mediastinal nodal involvement. And the findings here were also a, a very promising with more than half of the patients having a pathological complete response. Uh, you'll see in blue and light blue and you'll also see that uh, the vast majority of these patients at, at more than two years of follow-up have not had a relapse of their disease and these responses appear to occur irrespective of pd one status tumor mutation burden and also uh, treatment was highly feasible and didn't appear to impact the feasibility of surgery the checkmate h16 study was the first um, phase three neoadjuvant chemoimmunotherapy study to be reported in lung cancer. And this enrolled patients with stage 1b to 3a non-small cell lung cancer using the seventh edition. So the stage 1b patients in this trial would currently be in stage two. Um, patients had a good performance status and they were randomized to either the control arm, which was three cycles of platinum doublet chemotherapy given prior to surgery, or the investigational arm, which was chemotherapy plus uh, nivolumab. It should be noted um, the study originally had a third arm of, of nivolumab plus ipilimumab. However, given developments in metastatic lung cancer where chemoimmunotherapy was coming to the fore, this arm was discontinued early and was not part of the primary analysis. The primary outcome of this study was for primary endpoints of both pathological complete response and also event-free survival. And these are the demographics of the patients enrolled. So you'll see um, spread across North America, Europe, and Asia, a pretty representative population, high proportion of stage 3A patients, 63%, um, equal numbers of squamous and non-squamous. And also you'll see about 50% of the patients had pdl one positive tumors. And this is something we also see in the Empire 010 study, uh, which I'll discuss shortly. So these were the treatment outcomes and surgical um, outcomes. So the large majority of patients completed the three cycles of therapy, 94% in the Nevo chemo arm, 85% in the chemo arm. More patients in the Nevo chemo arm had lung sparing surgery. And this is an important outcome, especially for more locally advanced lung cancers, as pneumonectomies have increased rates of uh, morbidity and mortality. 
Similar rates of patients had cancelled definitive surgery, 16% in the nevo chemo, 21% of patients in the chemo arm. It should be noted, however, most of these cancellations were not actually due to um, disease progression, but rather in some cases patients choosing alternative therapies such as definitive chemoradiation, or some patients um, being found to have poor lung function at, uh, just prior to planned surgery. Delays to surgery were defined as uh, surgery occurring more than six weeks after the last dose of chemo or chemoimmunotherapy. And these again were not generally related to toxicity, uh, but largely administrative uh, regarding um, having a war list time or um, planning around holidays. And these were the primary outcome for the pathological complete response endpoint. Uh, the addition of NEVO to three cycles of chemo increased PCR from 2.2% with chemo alone to 24% with, uh, with chemo plus nivolumab. And this was assessed centrally and is in the entire intention to treat population and the pathologists were blinded to which arm of the study the patients were on. Um, but that when you look specifically at those patients who had a resection, again very similar results, an improvement from 3.2% with chemo alone to 30.5% with NEVO chemo and focusing only on the primary tumor, so not looking at the lymph nodes, very similar results as well. In the exploratory arm of NEVO plus IPI, the PCR rate was 20.4%. And just to talk a little bit about PCR in lung cancer, um, historically uh, the, um, this has been retrospectively strongly associated uh, with other outcomes such as uh, disease-free survival and long-term overall survival. However, this is the first prospective study to use PCR as a primary endpoint. Also looking at a major pathological response, and remember this is 10% or less residual viable tumor in the resected specimen, and again a similar increase from 8.9% with chemo alone to 36.9% with nevo chemo. And looking at the percent residual viable tumor in the resected specimen, and there was a significant improvement when you added nevo to chemo. 74% of residual viable tumor in the chemo alone arm went down to just 10% residual viable tumor in the nevo plus chemo arm. Um, there was a subpopulation, about one in four patients had available samples um, for a tumor-informed circulating tumor DNA assay. And this relied on obtaining whole exome sequencing of the primary tumor and then creating a um, bespoke a panel of ctDNA mutations. And again, more patients in the NEVO chemo arm cleared ctDNA uh, between cycle one and cycle three of neoadjuvant chemo, 56% versus 34% in the chemo arm. And among those patients who did clear ctDNA, um, those patients who got NEVO plus chemo uh, were more likely to have a pathological complete response. I mentioned earlier um, that perhaps NEVO chemo uh, counter, uh, counterintuitive in some ways because you're adding a new drug, but more patients had lobectomies or lung sparing surgery if they got NEVO chemo. And, and fewer patients required pneumonectomies, uh, particularly those with more locally advanced stage 3A disease. And perhaps this is because of response to therapy. However, we're looking into this a little bit further as well. So in summary, in terms of Checkmate 816, it met the first um, endpoint of PCR. And just this past week, um, November 8th, we had a press release stating that event-free survival is also positive in the study, favoring NEVO plus chemo across the population. Um, I think this is the first phase three trial of neoadjuvant therapy in lung cancer to demonstrate a statistically significant and, me and clinically meaningful uh, benefit as neoadjuvant therapy for lung cancer. And we'll be looking forward to seeing the full results of this study in the next few months. 
There are several other phase three neoadjuvant chemo plus PD-1 or PDL one um, studies ongoing. You'll note that a couple of these uh, these other studies um, also use PCR as a primary endpoint or else event-free survival or overall survival. One notable difference between Checkmate H16 and the other studies is that there was no adjuvant um, systemic therapy mandated in Checkmate H16. So it was three cycles of chemoimmunotherapy or chemo prior to surgery and then no, mandata no mandated post-operative therapy. Whereas all of the other studies have either one year of PD-1-based therapy a PD-1-based therapy post-operatively or one uh, year of uh, placebo. So moving on to the adjuvant setting, the Empire Zero 10 study was reported at, um, at ASCO earlier uh, this year and, and published in the Lancet Journal. Uh, this enrolled patients with stage 1b to 3a non-small cell lung cancer. Um, all patients had to commence at least one cycle of adjuvant cisplatin-based chemotherapy. Then after completing chemotherapy, uh, were randomized to a control arm with best supportive care or the investigational arm of the anti-PDL1 agent atezolizumab given once every three weeks for up to one year. There was a relatively complex primary endpoint, so you'll see on the right of your screen. Initially, uh, disease-free survival would be assessed in the PDL1, 1% uh, or greater, stage 2 and 3A population. Uh, remembering this is the seventh edition, so not including those tumors four centimeters or greater. If that was positive, then disease-free survival would be assessed in the full stage 2 and 3A population. Moving further down, you'll see if that was positive, disease-free survival would be assessed in the entire intention to treat population. And finally, if all of the uh, disease-free survival endpoints were positive, overall survival would be evaluated. And these are the results. So you'll see in the left of your screen, um, there was a, a significant improvement in disease-free survival in the atezolizumab arm in those patients who had pdl one positive tumors with a hazard ratio of 0.66. Moving on to the population, irrespective of PDL1 with stage 2 to 3A disease, again a significant hazard ratio, however, not quite as impressive, 0.79. And finally, in the right of your screen, in the entire randomized population intention to treat stage 1B to 3A, the hazard ratio was not yet significant at 0.81. And this is um, disease free survival in the key subgroups of the PDL1 positive stage 2 and 3A population. And this is the population which is a, a recently attained um, FDA approval for atezolizumab. So you'll see most group, groups do derive benefit, those patients with specific mutations, perhaps less so, also those patients who were current smokers. And looking at the um, stage 2 and 3A population, a disease-free survival uh, by disease and treatment characteristics, again, a benefit for almost all groups. Perhaps a slight suggestion, cisplatin gemcitabine uh, might not be as beneficial, uh, but again, these subgroups are relatively small. And looking by the full randomized population of stage 2 and 3A, uh, this is where we see some interesting breakdown. So when you look at PDL1 high tumors of 50% or greater, very clear benefit, a hazard ratio favoring atezolizumab of 0.43. When you look at the PDL1 negative tumors, almost no benefit, 0.92 hazard ratio. However, uh, when you look at the 1 to 49 group, so remembering that atezolizumab is approved for 1% or greater, there perhaps is some signal of benefit, but not significant, a hazard ratio when you exclude EGFR and ALK of 0.82. So I think this is a very clear benefit for the high PDL1 patients, less so for those of 49% or less. 
And again, as I mentioned, atezolizumab now approved our first new immunotherapy approval in early stage lung cancer for those tumors with stage 2 to 3A expression of PDL1 and 1% or greater. And, uh, and as with the new adjuvant setting, there are several adjuvant immunotherapy trials where we await results. And the ANVIL trial is the only one that actually has a primary endpoint of overall survival. All of them included both PDL1 and po positive and negative tumors. And these studies will sh should start to report out relatively soon. All of them have completed accrual at least two years ago at this point. So what are my thoughts on, um, on immunotherapy for early stage lung cancer at the moment? I think it's, a, it's great we're seeing positive results after many years of just having chemotherapy with modest benefits for patients. Um, I think the neoadjuvant setting is interesting, particularly for those patients perhaps with lower PD-L1 expression or PDL1 negative tumors, and also those patients with stage 2B and 3A tumors. In the adjuvant setting, I think there are situations where, uh, for example, with earlier stage 2 tumors and stage 1B tumors, um, the, the adjuvant setting might be preferable. And also for those patients with high PDL1. And I think uh, one of the big changes in this year is we're going to need to be checking PDL1 in all patients with early stage lung cancer. So I think we'll move on to the next um, section uh, where we're going to have some cases and practical discussion. Thank you very much, Patrick. Okay, so why don't we go into some cases and practical discussion now. And so the first case to consider is a 45-year-old male who presents with a melanoma in the arm, uh, measured 1.5 millimeters in depth, Clark's level 4 had one mitosis and no ulceration, had uh, no significant past medical history, exam was normal, underwent a wide excision and a sentinel lymph node mapping and biopsy and had a positive sentinel node, uh, notably was BRF wild type, all systemic imaging was normal and this patient was categorized as a stage 3A with a T2A N1A tumor. And so, so the question is, uh, what would you do for a patient like this? So there's a couple of options. Surveillance is, is certainly an option, adjuvant BRAF-MEC um, or adjuvant anti-PD-1. And, and if you think back to this case, uh, he was BRAF wild type, so adjuvant BRAF and MEC inhibition is not an option for him. However, surveillance or treatment with adjuvant anti-PD-1, both are viable options. And, and really, I think it's a personalized approach for each of these patients. This is a, a young patient um, who has good performance status, uh, relatively small focus, uh, but still, you know, could potentially derive some benefit. And so, so I think in this patient, um, I personally would consider adjuvant anti-PD-1, although uh, certainly surveillance would be on the table. Now let's contrast that with the next case. So this is a 67-year-old uh, male. Uh, me, we're going to talk about a, uh, an older patient with, with other issues or other comorbidities. So 67-year-old male uh, comes in with a three millimeter melanoma of the back. Uh, it has no ulceration, but does have a history of ileitis. Uh, the biopsy was not definitive for Crohn's, but has required transfusions for anemia. Uh, exam was totally normal. This patient was taken to the operating room, underwent a wide excision and a sentinel node, had positive sentinel lymph node uh, with multiple small deposits uh, in, within that lymph node. Systemic imaging was normal and this patient was a stage 3B, a T3A and 1A. And so uh, what are the options for this patient? And I think this is another uh, story here. I think, you know, certainly surveillance is an option. 
adjuvant BRF and MEK uh, inhibitors is, is actually qu quite a viable option in this patient if, if they're shown to be BRF, uh, have, if they have a BRF mutation. Um, and then um, adjuvant anti-PD-1 could certainly be given. I think in the setting of, of the ileitis, uh, there could be some issues with regard to potential immune-related adverse events. However, uh, there are studies suggesting that these agents can be used in patients with autoimmune disease. Now let's go on to the final case. So this is a 50-year-old uh, female who presented with a, a melanoma on her lower extremity. Uh, she had a six millimeter melanoma uh, with no ulceration, but Clark's level five with five mitoses. No significant past medical history, exam was normal, actually underwent imaging preoperatively and was found to have uh, disease in the groin uh, with no distant disease and biopsy showed a BRAF mutant melanoma. And so I think the considerations with a patient like this uh, would be, do you do either upfront surgery uh, and with adjuvant therapy, either checkpoint blockade or with uh, BRAF and MEK inhibition, or do you do neoadjuvant therapy followed by surgery, followed by adjuvant therapy? And, and uh, I think there's a couple considerations here. You know, certainly with a patient who has, this is not hugely bulky, but she definitely has clinically apparent disease. I think considering neoadjuvant treatment would certainly be very, uh, very tractable. And, and what we've seen is that using that neoadjuvant CTLA-4 blockade along with PD-1 blockade with the flip dosing regimen or, or IPI-1 NEVO-3 has been uh, quite effective in not only uh, having uh, less viable tumor at time of surgery, but also better uh, outcomes overall with uh, reduction in relapse-free survival. Um, neoadjuvant BRFMEC can also be used. Um, and honestly, I think a neoadjuvant approach with uh, potential for adjuvant therapy would be favored in a patient like this. Of course, um, clinical trials are always the best option, uh, but uh, surgery followed by adjuvant therapy, approved adjuvant therapy in this patient would also be quite tractable. And so with that, uh, we'll move on to Ronan, who will discuss a case of esophageal cancer. Thank you. Well, this is, this is a classic presentation uh, that all of us obviously have learned in medical school with esophageal cancer. It's that of dysphagia, patient feeling something impacted in their esophagus. So this patient, 75-year-old man, presents with a four-centimeter distal esophageal mass, was clinically staged as T3N1. Um, and you can see the PET scan there, SUV 11.9. But, you know, the, the, the standard of care up until this year, you can do two things. You could either do, depending on where you are in the world, some people just give chemo alone. But in the U.S., uh, we've always, a lot of us have preferred chemo radiation, which helps with lymph node clearance, which helps with achieving an R0 resection. However, the dose of chemotherapy you give or radiation has always been you know, a question mark. The cross regimen is actually low dose carboplatin and paclitaxel. People have been trying to increase the dose of chemo to get more of a systemic agent, uh, systemic doses. Uh, but that's very well tolerated, especially in a gentleman who's in his mid 70s. So then the patient had a minimally invasive esophagectomy. But as I said, the majority of patients, probably in the US with adenocarcinoma, 75, 80% of people do not have a PATCR. And we haven't had anything to be able to offer them in the adjuvant setting apart from just watching. But the natural history of esophageal cancer is a recurrence in the vast majority. And that's why our overall survival in esophageal 
was almost like pancreatic. It was, you know, really poor, unfortunately. Um, the question of HER2, is that a biomarker we can use to try to, you know, we know the audience will know that not just trastuzumab is approved in breast, but also in upper GI tumors. So we actually did a study, RTOG 1010, to look at giving neoadjuvant trastuzumab if you're HER2 positive. Didn't impact any, it didn't really, didn't work, um, which is disappointing. So we don't really have any targeted agents we can give in early stage disease. So the question uh, really up for discussion here is, you know, what's the best adjuvant treatment option? Uh, really, there's only one at the minute, which is in a patient like that, unless they have any contraindications, it would be adjuvant nivolumab. Um, as I mentioned, the risk of recurrence, I showed the Kaplan-Meier curves, 11-month disease-free survival in someone who's had trimodality therapy is really concerning. We haven't had prospective randomized phase three data to show us that. So that also indicates that these patients with a malignancy like an esophageal or GD junction cancer, we can't just watch and wait for them because their disease will recur in a short period of time. And then when's the optimal time to start this in someone who has to recover from an esophagectomy? That's, that's a big question. In our study, we looked at less than 10 weeks versus greater than 10 weeks. But Jennifer, what I'll tell you is I, you know, that's a subgroup analysis study. Isn't really powered for that. Uh, you as a surgeon, what, you know, what I, what I say to patients is if you've got a fit patient who has had to say a minimally invasive esophagectomy, has recovered, has, you know, really regained all their strength and you, after seven weeks, you want to start them, that's fine. But if you've got an elderly patient who uh, is a bit frail, you know, is continuing to lose weight, has to see the dietitian, can't get used to the new anatomy. Please wait for more than 10 weeks because the, the subgroup show it, you don't actually hurt the patient by waiting. You could, we don't want to go 16 weeks because our study didn't allow us to go 16 weeks, but give them a little bit of time to recover and then they can start the adjuvant treatment. I think that would be the best option. That's great. Thanks, Ronan. That's a great discussion. All right. Well, in the interest of time, we'll move on uh, to the next case discussion. Uh, so Amanda presents pretty typically for patients diagnosed with bladder cancer. She presents with hematuria. She has good renal function. A cystoscopy is performed and shows a bladder mass. Biopsy confirms muscle invasive disease. Standard treatment for muscle invasive bladder cancer in patients who are cisplatin eligible is cisplatin-based neoadjuvant chemotherapy, which she receives four cycles of gemcitabine and cisplatin and she's taken to the operating room for a cystectomy, and her pathology reveals residual T3N1 disease. And so the question is, uh, what are the options for her after surgery? So historically, uh, we would observe patients with this pathology at the time of surgery uh, because there have been no studies suggesting that alternative adjuvant approaches improved outcomes. There have been retrospective studies seeking to determine whether or not we could switch to different chemotherapy that, than what was administered in the neoadjuvant setting. Uh, in those retrospective studies are small and biased and have shown mixed results. The new generation of studies seeking to explore immune checkpoint blockade in the adjuvant setting have enrolled 
such patients, understanding that this is uh, a high-risk situation in terms of the, the chance of recurrence. Um, so Checkmate 274 demonstrated an improvement in disease-free survival in patients with residual T2 or higher disease after neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Uh, Amanda's pathology is consistent with this. Her clinical presentation is consistent with this. And so adjuvant nivolumab would now be standard in this situation. Great, thanks so much, Matt. All right, so let's move on to lung cancer. And so Patrick, if you can uh, talk about the next case. Thanks, Jennifer. Um, so this is a 65-year-old man who has a 30-pack year history of smoking. And we're gradually seeing increasing in screening for lung cancer. I need a screening chest CT. Um, uh, which you'll see on the right, so in the middle of your screen there with a the mass in the right lower lobe. Um, he then under, underwent a CT guided biopsy of the mass, which showed a TTF1 positive lung adenocarcinoma, and staging was completed with a PET scan and, a, and an EBUS. And this showed a clinical stage 2 tumor, T2N1. So, how would we manage this patient? Uh, would we consider neoadjuvant therapy first, surgery first, or do we need more information? So the standard of care for a potentially resectable lung cancer depends on the stage. So for stage 3A disease, um, neoadjuvant chemoradiation followed by resection can be considered or neoadjuvant chemotherapy. And there was a study uh, conducted across the NCCN institutions in the US and about 50% of institutions do each of these for stage 3A. Some, some institutions also do definitive chemoradiation for potentially resectable 3A, and that's a controversial area in general. However, in this patient's case, he had stage two disease, so a clinical T2, T2N1. And he was referred for a clinical trial and decided to enroll. So in this case, induction chemoimmunotherapy. For these cases in general, uh, particularly stage 2 and 3A disease, I think it's recommended to discuss their cases uh, with the multidisciplinary uh, team, uh, particularly as we're seeing more integration of new therapies for early stage disease. And this was the outcome. So you'll see the pretreatment PET scan and CT on the left, some reduction in disease in the middle of the screen, um, more evident probably on the CT, and that's something we sometimes see on PET scans. Depending on the timing of the PET, you may or may not see a metabolic response. At the time of surgery, the tumor was clearly resected, and pathology showed a major pathological response, so 10% or less residual viable uh, tumor. And this patient has, has continued uh, postoperatively after receiving chemoimmunotherapy or trial. Uh, focusing more on the adjuvant therapy setting. Um, so this is a 55-year-old um, Asian man who has an extensive history of smoking uh, presented with hemoptysis, so symptomatic presentation as opposed to a screening presentation. This, the chest x-ray showed a right, a right lobe, um, upper lobe mass. CT confirmed that mass to be almost five centimeters in diameter with a single lymph node involved at the right hilum. So, so again, um, N1 disease here. Staging was negative otherwise and went to surgery and had a right upper lobectomy. This is pro probably the more common scenario across the US in that most patients who have clearly resectable disease uh, go to surgery up front. We may have to change this paradigm over time depending on results from, from neoadjuvant studies, uh, but, at, but at the moment, this is a very common scenario. Um, the tumor was a lung adenocarcinoma highly pdl one positive at 70% and negative for mutations. And again, it's important in particular, we check EGFR for these patients as osimertinib is approved in the adjuvant setting. 
and would be preferred if there was an EGFR mutation present. Only one lymph node was positive, and the patient received four cycles of adjuvant cisplatin uh, 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 based chemotherapy with only mild neuropathy as a toxicity. So, would you offer this patient um, adjuvant atezolizumab? I think, given the high PDL1 of 70%, negative EGFR, and the clear benefit for atezolizumab, yes, is the answer here. Um, this particular case was prior to the approval, which occurred very recently, and, and he enrolled in a trial of adjuvant IO, very little toxicity, tolerated therapy well, and is currently being observed. Thank you, Patrick. So uh, a few provocative questions with regard to this subject. I think one is what's the role of biomarker testing to guide candidate selection for immunotherapies in early stage cancers? And this is certainly an evolving area. Um, I can tell you updated information from our pooled analysis, which was uh, published in Nature Medicine, showed that uh, tumor mutational burden and also interferon signatures were predictive of response to neoadjuvant immune checkpoint blockade in um, uh, resectable metastatic melanoma, but would love to hear thoughts from others. You know, certainly PDL1, T cell infiltration, other uh, molecular uh, drivers or alterations. Ronan, do you want to uh, take a stab at this first? Uh, you know, I, I think uh, those upper GI tumors are clearly not as, as immunologically hot as, as melanoma, lung, bladder, kidney. So I, I think we're going to see that across multiple solid tumors that things will change. What I can tell you is it didn't look like tumor cell PDL1 was a was a, a biomarker that was very useful in esophageal cancer. Gotcha. A combined positive score of PDL1 may be more useful, but we need more interpretation because we know that we can we get interferon release post-radiation and that's going to cause that to go up. So again, we just need a little bit more information around that. Tumor mutation burden seems to play a role. In, uh, we have a tumor agnostic approval in the second line setting for um, a checkpoint inhibitor in, in those patients that are TMB high. Whether it plays a role in the adjuvant space or the neoadjuvant space, we don't know yet. And, th and that would be similar answer to T-cell infiltration. And we've no uh, driver mutations information at the moment that seems to be indicating in these early stage tumors whether um, a patient is likely to respond or not. So I think we're just at the very start of this. Um, the Checkmate 577 esophageal study was the first study in this space for esophageal and GE junction. So as I said, we'll see a lot of other studies now in the next couple of years. Hopefully we'll get more answers. Gotcha. Well, let's move to Patrick because there's a lot more data with lung cancer. Patrick, what are your thoughts here? Yeah, I think um, so what we've learned really in the last two years is that there are two Two tests we need to do in early stage lung cancers uh, that's EGFR mutation testing and PDL1. Um, PDL1 has probably more of an implication in lung cancer than in nearly, nearly every other malignancy, in that it guides our first line metastatic treatment. And it's looking like it may be important in early stage disease as well, in that, uh, particularly in the Empire 010 study, the benefit um, that was largely in the high PDL1 tumors, perhaps some benefit in 1 to 49, but mainly in 50% or greater. Um, the stepwise change in terms of PDL1 was less evident for the PCR endpoint of Checkmate 816, and that there appeared to be benefit, at least in terms of PCR, for PDL1 negative cancers. And we'll see how that plays out with event free survival. Um, the main TMB data we have in, in lung cancer is from the neoadjuvant setting with the Checkmate 816, uh, which 
um, didn't appear to show a, different in a difference in terms of PCR. And again, we'll await the event-free survival. But again, to reiterate, I think the two things we, uh, we as a community in lung cancer really need to be doing is, is for non-squamous tumors, testing for EGFR, because those patients are likely to derive benefit from EGFR tyrosine kinase inhibitors and probably don't derive benefit from immunotherapy. And on the other hand, for those patients who are not mutated, checking PD-L1 is a, is a central thing now, especially for stage two and three A tumors in the eighth edition. Great, okay. Matt, anything to add with GU? Um, just in the interest of time, I would make one comment, which is that I think we have a double biomarker problem in the perioperative setting. Uh, not only don't we know who benefits from treatment, we actually don't know who needs treatment. And sometimes these biomarkers are conflated, but they're actually two separate things. And I think we have to advance maybe who needs treatment first and then determine who benefits from treatment. Great. And I think we can use the same slide to kind of talk about hot versus cold tumors and how can we actually enhance responses to neoadjuvant and adjuvant checkpoint blockade. I think, uh, you know, and Ronan, you had brought up, you know, can we actually use strategies to increase PDL1 favorable, you know, PDL1 within the tumor microenvironment? Can we radiate tumors, you know, and make them more responsive to immunotherapy? Can we drive in T cell infiltrate by uh, injectables, you know, and other strategies? Um, driver mutations, can, you know, we target uh, oncogenic mutations and make tumors more immunogenic like we do in melanoma. Would love, you know, general thoughts from each of you on that. You, you know, as, as we add more IO-IO combinations in early stage disease, especially in the neoadjuvant space, we need to make sure we don't increase toxicity, which then impacts the ability of the surgeon to do what they need to do. And that's going to be the fine balance, especially when you combine radiation with a dual IO-IO strategy, now you're causing significant alterations because we've seen this in some of our studies that um, we know in radiation causes interferon on gamma release. It causes a lot of checkpoints to go up. Whether that's artificial, that's just part of the, you know, the interferon gamma release, but now you're, you're adding IO-IO strategies. I think single agent PD-1 looks like it's well tolerated. I think I've seen it across the board. I think we can do that. Can we add in more things before surgery? That'll be the question. Or are we going to see more pneumonitis, more pericarditis, more of these things that we don't want to see? So that'll be, that'll be interesting over the next couple of years as we try to tease that out. Definitely. Matt, any thoughts on... Um, I, I certainly agree with those comments, and I would say that moving these drugs into the perioperative setting is a, is a little bit of a double-edged sword because it really creates some complexities in developing immune checkpoint blockade-based combination strategies because that space to test the strategies in advanced disease has disappeared, and yet uh, there's trepidation about moving combinations into a curable patient population. At the same time, the benefits, of course, are using this as a platform for reverse translational research. And so small studies with combinations to really dissect the tumor microenvironment at high resolution and generate insights into what's driving resistance clearly are, are showing promise. That's great. That's an outstanding point. Patrick, did you want to build on that? Yeah, just briefly, I think one, uh, one potential um, thing that levels the playing field for lung cancer is the addition of chemotherapy to immunotherapy. We've seen that in advanced lung cancer in that it makes PDL one less of a player, which presumably is a, a because of some um, impact on the immune microenvironment. The other thing we are seeing in, in some studies in lung cancer is these novel combinations uh, being used in 
in adaptive clinical trials where we're um, looking at combinations moving relatively quickly from being studied in advanced disease into the early stage disease in the neoadjuvant setting with uh, some of the focus um, that Matt mentioned on on looking at correlative endpoints primarily. Um, but I think we have to do that safely and obviously make sure there isn't an impact on the on the surgical outcomes as well. Right, and I think that's an important message for the audience is uh, in the context of clinical trials, do these in the context of clinical trials, but innovative design, using correlatives, really learning from every patient is really key. And this brings us to our next point, you know, Ronan brought up toxicity and I think, you know, certainly, yes, we've seen a lot of promise with this, but we've also seen, uh, you know, a lot of immune-related adverse events. This is kind of just the spectrum of different immune-related adverse events that you can see and and really what are the concerns. I think, you know, certainly we've all become better at recognizing these um, and patients are, are being informed and are able to recognize these earlier, but really earlier detection and management of these IREs is key. And again, I think, you know, Ronan, thank you for the, you know, the call out because it does bring up major concerns uh, for surgeons, for everyone on the team and for patients, uh, but there are real implications for surgeons. We've tried to educate our surgical community to really understand toxicity related to immune checkpoint blockade and uh, considerations for the surgeon. I can tell you we've had you know, numerous you know, patients who actually have adrenal insufficiency and adrenal crisis, you know, uh, in the post-operative period and you need to have that in your mind when you're treating these patients because you might otherwise not really be cognizant of that and so so we have a publication that we put out just to inform the surgical community and so what i'd really like to highlight through this is that uh, there are multiple take take home messages here for surgeons for medical oncologists for other disciplines not only independently but i think together as multidisciplinary teams we can learn a lot from this discussion I think, um, you know, certainly uh, we've thought of a lot of different ones in the context of this. Uh, Ronan, did you want to bring up anything in particular? Well, you know, I think as we move these treatments now into the operative setting, quality of life becomes important as well, you know, really important because now you're asking people to embark on a long, arduous journey, which, you know, which is obviously neoadjuvant space, then surgery, and then a year of a checkpoint inhibitor. So uh, what I can tell you is in, in our study, Checkmate 577, we did a lot of quality of life and, and thankfully it was really well tolerated, the adjuvant checkpoint inhibitor. Um, but people were aware, you know, you're asking me now to stay on treatment. But historically, when I had my surgery, I was done, you know, and so, so that's going to be something we're going to have to get used to talking to our patients to try not to think of the whole journey in one big you know, overwhelming moment to try to compartmentalize it and that we'll get patients through those different steps. But if they think about it as a huge, big, long, you know, year and a half almost of treatment or whatever, it may be overwhelming for some patients. Yeah, and I think and I think talking to each other across disciplines is really important too. You know, I'll bring up that Prado trial where we uh, actually resect that index lesion and if they've had a complete response, they're done, right? They don't need to go on to any adjuvant therapy. And granted, it's a clinical trial, uh, but nonetheless, can we use these types of uh, approaches across different cancer types using the neoadjuvant and adjuvant uh, immune checkpoint blockade um, and really learn from one another to help drive the field forward? Uh, Matt, any additional insights? 
I was going to make a similar point, Jennifer, in that um, while uh, pathological complete response as an intermediate endpoint or a surrogate endpoint, um, it, it might be an important tool for drug development. It might be an important tool for individualized decision making as we move forward and change treatment paradigms as well. So can we actually not only achieve these good outcomes, but also modify um, the, ex the treatment burden uh, that patients were previously exposed to um, at, and, and make this a, a, an ultimate win-win. Great. And Patrick? Yeah, I think uh, very briefly, just to, to, to mention circulating tumor DNA, I think we're starting to see, uh, there was a little bit of data there from Checkmate H16 and, and I think from, Matt, uh, for, from studies in bladder as well, but we're starting to see, um, so at least the first phase three trial in lung cancer, which uses post-operative um, uh, detection of ctDNA to triage patients to either a um, year of therapy or no therapy. And I think that's uh, potentially the way to go across, across many tumor types, especially those which secrete uh, um, or sheds a significant amounts of circulating tumor DNA and that it might, might also address many of the other issues we've brought up in terms of toxicity and in terms of, of impact and quality of life if we can really select out those patients who need therapy. Great. Well, I think it's been a great discussion. I think uh, we still have a bit to learn, but the future is bright. And I think this ends our discussion today, which focused on the rapid progress being made with transitioning immunotherapies into early stage curative intense setting in many different cancer types. I hope you found the information and insights shared by our multidisciplinary faculty uh, interesting and useful to your practice. And a big thank you to all of our excellent panelists. It's been a great discussion. I'm glad we've had a chance to learn from one another and to convey our experiences to our audience. We're only at the beginning of this exciting era, and I can uh, look forward to many more practice-changing developments that will hopefully improve outcomes for our patients with early-stage cancers. And so thank you very much uh, for your attention and for your expertise. This activity is certified by Medical Learning Institute, Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash DVD 860. This activity is supported through an educational grant from Bristol-Myers Squibb.